Al-Bayan Radio presents The Life of Prophet Muhammad, Peace be upon him Presented by Nidal Ayyubi Bismillah, Alhamdulillah Assalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala Assalamu alaikum dear brothers and sisters And welcome back to our Sira classes On the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Today in lesson number 3 Insha'Allah we will discuss the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a teenager or as a young adult. And also we will discuss his occupations, his marriage to Khadija radiyallahu anha and a few incidents that happened before prophethood. And my dear brothers and sisters, one of the incidents that has been mentioned in the books of Sirah is the incident of Harbul Fijar or the battle of wickedness or immorality. And the word Fujar is derived from the root word fujur. So we get fajara yafjuru, which means to digress from the truth and the straight path. And these wars were called this because they were fought in the violation of the sacred months, which are four, Dhul-Qa'da, Dhul-Hijjah, Muharram, and Rajab. Even before Islam, my dear brothers and sisters, the pagan Arabs held these four months as sacred. But they used to play around with this by postponing some or delaying some to suit their needs and desires and these wars lasted for many years and it's been mentioned that the prophet وسلم, was around 15 years old when these battles started and was around 20 when they concluded and these battles or wars were between Quraysh and its allies such as Kinana and Qais Ghilan and their allies now some reports in the books of Sirah say that the Prophet ﷺ was present during these wars and that he picked up arrows and gave them to his uncles. So eventually, my dear brothers and sisters, the warring tribes made peace. And when it concluded, this battle was the fourth and most deadly in a series of skirmishes that had erupted over the previous years. It would, however, be the last. Now soon after these battles, the Prophet ﷺ witnessed Hilf al-Fudul or an alliance or pact or an agreement based on justice. Now the word Fudul comes from the word Fadl which means nobility and virtue. Now the background of this alliance or agreement based on justice was that a man came to Mecca from the Yemeni port of Zubaid to sell his merchandise in Mecca. A local who some have named to be Al-As bin Wa'il, took all of his goods but refused to pay him. Now, this helpless stranger initially approached some of the tribes who ignored his cries. In desperation, he climbed to the top of a hill in Mecca and informed everyone of how his goods had been taken. And he asked for help. Now, his plea was initially answered by Zubair bin Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who volunteered to help this stranger. Zubair, the uncle of the Prophet wasallam, called on representatives of all the clans to assemble in the house of Abdullah ibn Jud'an, where they decided that it was necessary to stand up for anyone who had suffered injustice, regardless of their tribal affiliation. Then they forced Al-As bin Wa'il to return the merchandise that he had taken from the man from Yemen. And the Prophet وسلم, was present during Hilf al-Fudul. And he said وسلم, I participated in the pact made by Al-Mutayyibin. Here referring to 
Banu Hashim, Banu Zuhra, and Banu Makhzum, along with my uncles. Although I was just a boy, and I wouldn't wish that I had a couple of red camels in return of non-participation. And this hadith is found in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, rahimuhullah, and has been declared sahih by Sheikh Ahmad Shakir, rahimuhullah. In a similar report, my dear brothers and sisters, the Prophet wasallam is reported to have said, I was present in the house of Abdullah ibn Jud'an at the excellent pact, and I would not exchange my part in it for a herd of red camels. If now in Islam I were summoned to it, I would gladly respond. My dear brothers and sisters, this incident teaches us that the Prophet wasallam always supported justice and was against oppression even in his youth. Therefore, as Muslims, my dear brothers and sisters, we need to always be supporters of justice and be against oppression in all of its forms. And this incident also shows us the good nature and qualities of Banu Hashim. For the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ played a great role in this pact and alliance. And this also shows the greatness and virtues of Banu Hashim over other tribes. And the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was from this tribe is enough of a proof of their virtues above other tribes. My dear brothers and sisters, when the Prophet ﷺ was still young, Abu Talib was going through a financial crisis, for he had many mouths to feed and business wasn't going so well. So to help his uncle, the Prophet ﷺ worked as a shepherd. My dear brothers and sisters, the Prophet ﷺ said, ما بعث الله نبيا إلا راع الغنم. Every prophet that Allah sent herded sheep, or in other words, worked as a shepherd. The companions رضي الله عنهم asked, and even you, he صلى الله عليه وسلم said, نعم كنت أرعاها على قراريط لأهل مكة. Yes, I herded them for Qarariit for the people of Mecca. And this hadith is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. Ibn Hajar rahimuhullah, he said the meaning of Qarariit has two possible meanings. One, that it is a place in Mecca. And two, it is a portion of a dinar, in which case the Prophet ﷺ was mentioning his wages for his work. My dear brothers and sisters, a shepherd picks up and develops many wonderful qualities. Qualities that a prophet needs to lead his nation, such as patience, humbleness, bravery, mercy and compassion, and also the ability to deal with hardship. And also, a shepherd builds or develops the love of earning one's living through lawful work. And the Prophet ﷺ has said, No one has eaten better food than that which he eats from what he works at with his hand. And verily the Prophet of Allah Dawood would eat from the work of his hand. And this hadith is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. So the first profession or occupation the Prophet had was herding sheep or working as a shepherd. Also my dear brothers and sisters, Prophet just like his uncle became involved in trade. So people would often ask him to manage and trade merchandise on their behalf. And he did this, my dear brothers and sisters, with great honesty. And he became known throughout Mecca as Al-Ameen, one who was reliable and trustworthy. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, from those who found out about the Prophet Wasallam's characteristics and trustworthiness and honesty, was a noble woman from Quraysh who was twice married and widowed at the time known as Khadija. Khadija radiallahu anha was a determined and intelligent woman. 
She was also rich and had several kinds of trade. And the men of Mecca were very keen to marry her and she did not engage in trade directly. Rather, she used to employ men to work on her behalf. Now news reached Khadija of the honest and trustworthy Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So she wanted to hire him to work for her and do trade on her behalf. So an offer was sent to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he agreed to that. Now the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam came back from the trade journey and he had made more money trading for Khadija than anyone else had before. And Khadija was impressed with the personality and character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam which she was informed of by her servant Maysara who was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam during the trade journey. And he witnessed firsthand the amazing character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now Khadija radiallahu anha, she was so impressed by the reports about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that she sent a marriage proposal to him. Although she was older than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam received the marriage proposal, and some reports indicate that he received this proposal through the friend of Khadija Nafisa, the Prophet ﷺ was pleased with this proposal, but he first went to his uncles to seek their advice. And they all agreed that he should marry her as she was the noblest woman amongst Quraysh. And pretty much every Meccan chief and noble wanted to marry her, but she refused. So the Prophet ﷺ married her and she was the first woman he married ﷺ, and he didn't marry any other woman until she died. Now the Prophet ﷺ had six children from Khadija, two sons and four daughters. The sons were Qasim, and this is where the kunya of the Prophet ﷺ comes from, Abu Qasim, and also Abdullah, also known as Al-Tayyib and Al-Tahir. And his daughters were Zainab, Rukayya, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima radiallahu anhun. Now all of the sons of the Prophet ﷺ, including Ibrahim who he had from Maria, died during infancy or childhood. Now all of his daughters lived to see their father become a Prophet ﷺ, and they all embraced Islam and migrated to Medina and all of them died during his lifetime ﷺ, except Fatima who died six months after him ﷺ. My dear brothers and sisters, regarding the age of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he married Khadija, the most common age mentioned is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was 25 and Khadija was 40. And there are reports that Khadija was 28 years old, wallahu a'lam. And she died radiallahu anha when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was around 50 years old. And he was married to her for 25 years sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And her virtues are great. She believed in the Prophet ﷺ. She supported him with herself and her wealth. And her virtues are mentioned in the authentic hadith where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Jibreel gave her salam and Jibreel gave her the glad tidings of a mansion in paradise in which there will be neither noise nor trouble as is found in Sahih, Bukhari and Muslim. And he sallallahu alayhi wasallam continued to mention her even after she passed away radiyallahu anha for she believed in him when people disbelieved in him for she held him truthful when people belied him and she supported him with her wealth when people prevented him and she was the mother of all his children 
except Ibrahim. And the Prophet also said, Maryam bint Imran was the best of women of her time, and the best woman of her time is Khadija. And this hadith is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. My dear brothers and sisters, when the Prophet was around 35 years old, a devastating flood damaged the Kaaba. And the walls of the Kaaba had earlier been weakened by a fire. And the flood caused additional cracks to form. Now the Kaaba, as we discussed previously, was held in high respect and revered by the Quraysh. And now it was in danger of collapse. The Quraysh, seeing their house of worship under threat of ruin, they decided to rebuild the Kaaba. And the tribes got together and they resolved not to taint the project with any wealth which was gained through usury or interest, prostitution or theft. Now, as the walls of the Kaaba had to be torn down before they could rebuild the Kaaba, the Quraysh feared that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would punish anyone who raised his hand against the sacred house. So Walid al Mughira was the first to approach the Kaaba, declaring, Allahumma inna la nuridu illa khayra. Oh Allah, we do not want or desire except good. So he began to dismantle the walls of the Kaaba. Now when the others observing him saw that he was not harmed after removing some of the walls of the Kaaba, they began to join him and they began to dismantle the Kaaba. Now they demolished the Kaaba down to the original foundation laid by Ibrahim salam. Now the construction of the Kaaba started with each tribe being given specific duties and tasks. Now the nobles among them carried pieces of stone and piled them up in one place and among them was the Prophet and his uncle Abbas. So they were carrying stones to rebuild the Kaaba. Now my dear brothers and sisters, the tribes were unable to collect enough money to rebuild the Kaaba as it was built by Ibrahim So a small wall was built showing the boundaries of the original foundation laid by Ibrahim and this small wall on the northern side of the Kaaba became known as the Hijr and that area or that semicircle is part of the Kaaba but due to the fact they ran out of funds they could not build it according to the foundations of Ibrahim Now my dear brothers and sisters as they completed this wall what was left was to return the black stone to its spot. And now a dispute arose as to who will have the honor of returning the black stone in its place. Now my dear brothers and sisters, the black stone has many virtues and it has a history. And as the authentic reports mention that the black stone was sent down from Jannah and that it was whiter than milk, but the sins of the sons of Adam made it black. And also that the black stone will come forth on a day of resurrection and it will testify in favor of those who touched it in truth. And as we know, my dear brothers and sisters, touching, kissing or pointing to the black stone is the first thing to be done when starting tawaf, whether it is for hajj, umrah or voluntary tawaf. And also, my dear brothers and sisters, the Prophet ﷺ kissed the black stone and his ummah followed his lead. And also from the virtues of the black stone, my dear brothers and sisters, is that touching the black stone is means by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expiates sins or wipes away sins. So now, my dear brothers and sisters, as we were saying, dispute arose as to who will return the black stone to its spot. Each chief of each tribe wanted this honor. Now the crisis continued for four or five days, my dear brothers and sisters, and bloodshed was imminent. 
At that time, Abu Umayyah, the father of Umm Salama radiallahu anha, the oldest among them, found a solution to the problem. He suggested that the next man who entered the gate of the Kaaba should be given the authority to settle the dispute. Now everyone agreed to this suggestion. And by the will of Allah, the next man who entered was the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They said, it's Muhammad. And they said, since he is trustworthy, we all agree to abide by his decision. Now the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, having learned of the details of the dispute, he asked them to bring a sheet or a cloth. He then took the black stone and placed it on the sheet and asked each clan to take a hold of an edge of the sheet and lift it together. When the black stone was lifted up by the various tribes, the Prophet Muhammad pushed it into place with his own hands and this made everyone satisfied and a great conflict was averted. My dear brothers and sisters, this incident shows the Prophet ﷺ using wisdom in settling the dispute about the black stone. My dear brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet ﷺ during the early years of his life. Even during the Jahiliyyah, the pre-Islamic times of ignorance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet ﷺ from idol worship and all forms of shirk. Therefore the Prophet ﷺ was protected by Allah from all forms of evil and from anything that was not in harmony with the message for which he was being prepared for. An example of being protected from idol worship is that the Prophet ﷺ never bowed to an idol, never swore an oath using their names, never offered anything to them, and he never ate anything that was offered to an idol. He ﷺ never drank khamar or wine and alcohol, nor did he go near fahisha, immoral or lewd actions. He ﷺ used to also stand at Arafah with the rest of the people during Hajj, unlike the Quraysh, who would not leave the Muzdalifa area, meaning the Haram area, because of their so-called special status. Now my dear brothers and sisters, if we were to take a snapshot of his character, we will see that he ﷺ, as we mentioned, was known for his truthfulness and honesty, maintaining matars of kingship and all praiseworthy characteristics and qualities. He was intelligent, modest, brave, just, pious, patient, loyal, and hospital towards his visitors and guests. Now as we're going to discuss, after the first revelation, the Prophet ﷺ went to Khadija anha, for he feared that something had happened to him. Khadija then said to him, never. And she said, I swear by Allah, Allah would never disgrace you. You keep relations with your family, help the weak and poor, serve your guests generously, and assist those who deserve help. Now my dear brothers and sisters, before we take the prelude or the signs of prophethood, or things that the Prophet ﷺ saw before the onset of the first revelation, we would like to take a quick look at the state of the world before revelation, and more specific, the Arabs before Islam. My dear brothers and sisters, as we've used and mentioned a few times, the Arabs before Islam were going through a period known as Al-Jahiliyyah. And this is generally used to refer to the period before the coming of the Prophet And as the ulama have mentioned, it refers to two things that are combined in this period. And they are Jahal or ignorance and Al-Jahala, 
foolishness. Shaykh Ibn rahimahullah, he said, What is meant by jahiliyyah is the time before the Prophet ﷺ was sent. Because at that time, the people's ignorance was great. It included ignorance both of the rights of Allah and the rights of his servants, meaning other human beings. And this is mentioned by the Shaykh in his commentary on Kitab al-Tawheed. My dear brothers and sisters, the Arabian societies before Islam were not disbelievers in God completely or atheists that denied the existence of Allah or a society that was unaware that there is a Lord, Creator and Provider. No, they knew that there was a Lord and they retained some traces of the religion of the Prophet Ibrahim But their main problem, my dear brothers and sisters, was they did not worship Allah alone. They associated other objects of worship, other gods and deities in worship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And which they worshipped not on the basis that they were the Lord, the Creator, the Provider, but because they claimed that these were intermediaries who would intercede between them and Allah and bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah tells us about this in the Quran such as Ayah 87 of Surah Zukhraf where he says subhanahu wa ta'ala And if you ask them, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who created them, they would surely say Allah. So this indicates, my dear brothers and sisters, that they acknowledge that Allah is Al-Khaliq, the Creator. In another ayah, in Surah Al-Zumar, ayah 38, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, And if you ask them, who created the heavens and the earth, they would surely say, Allah. Many ayat, my dear brothers and sisters, indicated that they believed in Tawheed al-Rububiyyah, meaning in the unity of Lordship, or to single out Allah alone in His right of Lordship, that Allah, He is Al-Khaliq, Al-Malik, Al-Mudabbir, that Allah, He is the Creator, He is the Owner, the King, and He is the Controller. But there should came, my dear brothers and sisters, in Allah's right to be worshipped alone. In the category of Tawheed, which we know as Tawheed al-Ibadah, or Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, the right of Allah to be worshipped alone, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in Surah Al-Zumar, Ayah 3, And those who take awliya or protectors, helpers, lords and gods besides him, besides Allah, they say, we worship them only that they may bring us nearer to Allah. Now my dear brothers and sisters, the worst quality the Arabs had in Jahiliyyah was shirk, associating partners with Allah. And this is the greatest crime. Because the purpose of our lives, my dear brothers and sisters, is to worship Allah alone subhanahu wa ta'ala. As he tells us, Illa 
and I, meaning Allah, have not created jinn in mankind except for the sole purpose of worshipping me alone. Now, they had many other bad qualities as well, such as drinking wine, gambling, falling into riba, zina, killing their children due to fear of poverty, and also burying their infant daughters alive. And it's been mentioned they did this for fear of future shame, or they, their daughters, may be a reason to bring enemies, or for fear of having to spend on them, or they found no benefit in them. Now my dear brothers and sisters, they did have some good qualities, but they weren't seeking the pleasure of Allah and were also nullifying their actions by committing shirk. But they were well known to be generous to their guests. They used to keep their word. They had a sense of honor, courage. They were known to be blunt. They had firm will and determination. They had forbearance and mildness. And they lived a pure and simple Bedouin life away from philosophy and the like unlike the Greeks and Romans of that time especially. Now, if we were to take a summary or snapshot of the Arabs at that time, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu an, when he spoke on behalf of the Muslims as we're going to discuss later on in front of Al-Najashi or the king of Al-Habasha Abyssinia at that time, Ja'far said, describing the situation of the Arabs before Islam, O king, we were an ignorant people. We worshipped idols and ate the meat of deceased carcasses. We were accustomed to lewd behavior, to severing or cutting the ties of kingship, neglecting our neighbors, and the strong amongst us consumed the weak. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, Arabia was not, of course, the whole world at that time. Nor were the Arabs the only people steeped or drowning in acts of ignorance and foolishness or going through jahiliyyah. Pretty much the world at that time was going through this darkness. And this is found in the authentic hadith found in Sahih Muslim where the Prophet said, And indeed, Allah looked at the inhabitants or the people of the earth and despised them, both the Arabs and foreigners or non-Arabs among them, except for some remnants from the people of the book or Ahlul Kitab. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, by the turn of the 7th century CE, Central Arabia was surrounded by three main empires, the Romans, the Persians, and the Abyssinians, and three Arab border kingdoms who were basically aligned with these other powers that we just mentioned. Now, in terms of religions in and around Mecca, there was paganism, which was widespread throughout Arabia, as we have mentioned, how they used to associate partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by worshipping idols and statues and the like. And the Kaaba itself, my dear brothers and sisters, was surrounded by 360 idols. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us about the man Amr bin Luhayya al-Khuza'i. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saw him being punished in the hellfire. For he was the one who changed the religion of Ismail alayhi salam and introduced idols into the Arabian Peninsula and especially into Mecca. As is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. There was also my dear brothers and sisters al-Majus or the Magans, or the fire worshippers, and this was the dominant religion of the Persian Empire. And it developed into a dualistic theology, putting good against evil, and they used to worship the fire. And it was also Judaism, or the religion of the Jews. And the Jews, as we're going to discuss, migrated into Arabia over two periods. One after the Babylonian occupation of Palestine in 587 BC, and for a second time after the Roman conquest of the land and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. Now, a number of Jewish tribes migrated into Arabia and were settled at places like Yathrib or Medina, Khaybar, and other places. And we'll speak about them ta'ala when we speak about the Medina stage of the da'wah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, there's also a Sabi'un, which the Quran makes reference to, and this probably represented an ancient faith 
of either Babylonian or South Arabian origin, consisting of worship of the stars. And its followers, my dear brothers and sisters, were very few at the time of the rise of Islam. At any rate, it was considered a foreign religion in Mecca. For when a person abandoned or left the religion of his forefathers, the Arabs would say that he has turned Sabian or Sabah. He has become an outcast in other words. And there was also an Nasara, the Christians. And as we know, my dear brothers and sisters, within a few hundred years after Isa alayhi salam, after he was raised to the heaven, what began as a small Jewish sect, we can say, had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. In 325 CE, Jesus was formally recognized as both fully man and fully God. In 451 CE, the majority of Roman Christians had officially adopted the concept of the Trinity and this type of Christianity had also penetrated into some of the areas in Yemen as well as some of the northern Arabian tribes which we shall mention in our future lessons bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. But my dear brothers and sisters, all these religions which we just mentioned had little effect on the life and society of the Arabs in general, particularly Christianity and Judaism. For they had compromised their positions by their strong internal disagreements and intolerance of each other. And by their deviation from the original teachings of the prophets Isa, Jesus and Moses or Musa salam. Now my dear brothers and sisters, to the knowledgeable Arab at that time, Christianity with its beliefs in the Trinity and the worship of images of Isa and his mother Maryam appeared little better than his own worship of idols with the recognition of Allah as the Supreme Lord. Likewise, Judaism, with its claim that they were the chosen people and also the associating of partners of Allah with the claim of some of them that Uzair was the son of Allah. My dear brothers and sisters, this is highlighted by the fact that on the eve of the rise of Islam, a number of people came out in search of the true faith. The faith of Ibrahim السلام, and his son Ismail. And these people became known as Hanifs. And the fact that almost all of these Hanifs turned away from both these religions, meaning Christianity and Judaism, only illustrates their ineffectiveness on the mind of knowledgeable Arabs of the time. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, a Hanif, which means in Arabic to incline towards what is straight, they shunned idols in exchange for a simpler life devoid of pagan rituals. And they were scattered around Arabia, including a handful who lived among the Quraysh in Mecca. They simply withdrew from the mainstream. They arose sometime around the 6th century CE. They also believed that one must strive to also be morally upright. So my dear brothers and sisters, there were people who were searching for the truth, such as Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail, who was the father of Sa'id bin Zayd, who became a great companion and was one of the 10 promised paradise. And Zayd, he lived on his belief and died a few years, and some have said five years, before the Prophet ﷺ began his mission and started calling people to Islam. Another person who was searching for the truth was Salman al-Farisi And he was originally, my dear brothers and sisters, a Megan from Persia and his father was the chief of his village. And Salman was the dearest and most beloved person to his father and his father kept him in his house near the fire and he strove hard in his religion until he became the keeper of the fire. Now he eventually became Christian after one day hearing Christians praying in a church. He met many Christian monks and the last of whom was a righteous man who had knowledge of the last prophet. This monk, my dear brothers and sisters, advised Salman to go to Arabia where the last prophet would appear and he described the place to him and it was the city of Medina. 
he eventually became a Muslim, a great companion of the Prophet وسلم, who searched and found the truth and his full story is mentioned in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad So my dear brothers and sisters, to summarize these points during the Jahiliyyah, during the days of ignorance, before the coming of the Prophet وسلم, the people of Mecca were mushrikeen, they were idol worshippers. Most of them had no real religion or decent laws, except for a few such as Zayd bin Amr who we mentioned previously such as Waraka, who we're going to discuss very soon ta'ala. These few people shunned and kept away from shirk, idols, alcohol, immorality, and worshipped Allah alone, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, we'd like to finish off by speaking about how the Prophet ﷺ was being prepared to accept the prophethood, or the prelude to prophethood. Firstly, my dear brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he chose the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam even though he had grown up as an orphan and was illiterate and he couldn't read or write. But all good qualities and virtues were perfected in him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All these good qualities were combined and firmly established in him, something which no one else, my dear brothers and sisters, can attain except the prophets whom Allah perfected and guided. This combination of perfect qualities is one of the greatest proofs of the truth of his prophethood sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now my dear brothers and sisters, some of the signs of prophethood, meaning some of the signs the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam witnessed and experienced before the first revelation were true dreams. Ru'ya sadiqa or saliha. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would see true dreams. Whatever he would see in a dream would occur in exactly the same manner in real life. As is found in Sahih al-Bukhari in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha when she said the commencement of the wahi, the divine inspiration to Allah's messenger, meaning how it began, was in the form of a ru'ya saliha or good dreams which came true like bright daylight, meaning like the light of dawn. Also seclusion and solitude became beloved to him. As is also found in the hadith of Aisha in Sahih al-Bukhari where she said, and then the love of seclusion was bestowed upon him. He sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to go in seclusion in the cave of Hira where he used to worship continuously for many days before his desire to see his family. And therefore he would return. He used to take with him provision or food for that stay and then return to his wife Khadija to take his food likewise again to suddenly as the hadith mentions the truth descended upon him while he was in the cave of Hira as we're going to mention when we discuss the first revelation. Now my dear brothers and sisters, as has been mentioned in Fath al-Bari regarding some of the benefits during this seclusion in the cave, in the cave of Hira, Ibn Hajar mentioned that it was a type of khalwa or seclusion and solitude it was also a ta'abud worship and also a nazaru ila al-bayt he used to look at the house meaning the kaaba also another sign of prophethood was stones giving the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam salam or greetings of peace he sallallahu alayhi wasallam said as is found in sahih muslim inni la a'rifu hajaran bi makka كان يسلم علي قبل أن أبعث إني لا أعرفه الآن. I know a stone in Mecca that extended greetings of peace to me before I was sent, meaning as a prophet. Indeed, I still know of it now. So, my dear brothers and sisters, with this we'll conclude. 
In our next lesson تعالى, we will speak about the first revelation where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala almighty and wise revealed that which will change the world forever and that is the first revelation of the Quran. Barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.